Meditations. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Davo here, and you're listening to Med Conversations. Today, I'm joined by Beck. Hi, everybody. And Rahul. Hi. How are you going, guys? Introduce yourself. That's fine. Mm-hmm. So today, we'll be talking about hyperkalemia. That's high potassium. And uh, we're going to start off with a case. Then we're going to talk through the causes, how it presents, some ECG changes, and finally, how you treat it. So let's jump straight to Mavis. So Mavis comes with an exacerbation of heart failure. She's an elderly lady. She's about 87. And uh, she also has diabetes. And her regular medications for heart failure include bisoprolol, perindopril, spironolactone, and frusamide. So bisoprolol, perindopril, spironolactone, and frusamide. Correct, yeah. So out of, out of those medications and her conditions, what might predispose her to hyperkalemia? So I'm thinking the perindopril is an ACE inhibitor and mm-hmm. it can increase your serum potassium. Mm. And also the spironolactone is a potassium sparing diuretic. It's That's an right. aldosterone antagonist. Yeah, so those, yeah. those two drugs could increase potassium. And also if she's got diabetes um, and some renal involvement there, renal failure mm. can cause hyperkalemia. And that mm. renal failure might be exacerbated by her heart failure as well. Mm. Mm. That's true. So her K, her potassium, turned out to be 6.2. And that fits in with a 2005 case control study which found that diabetes, a poor creatinine clearance, spironolactone and ACE inhibitors are the biggest risk factors for hyperkalemia and heart failure patients, which is a very common thing that they suffer from. And we have to be careful with those medications and vigilant about it. All right, so four causes of hyperkalemia. We've moved on to the etiology. So what are the four causes that you guys think about? As in pathophysiology? Yeah, conceptual Mm. ways of thinking about Mm. it. Yeah. If you have a patient with a high K, how do you approach it? So I guess too much K coming into the body. That's it. Um, Decreased excretion. So how how does K get out of the body? Potassium. Um, Usually the kidneys. So yeah, renal failure. And maybe a shift in the amount of potassium in the serum and the amount of potassium inside the cells. That's it. So where does, where does potassium mostly live? In the cells. That's right, yeah. The way I think of it is two peas in a pod. So potassium and protein are two peas in the pod of the cell. Mm. Very cute. Very cute. Um, and so anything that shifts it out of there, because there's a lot in there, will um, massively increase your, your serum potassium. And the fourth category are those things that you find on drug charts, so medications. It's really important not to forget... (laughs) things you find on drug charts. Drugs, some call them. (laughs) It's really important not to forget to have a look through there for your perindopril, your beta blockers, your uh, potassium supplementation. Sometimes you'll find that. So the four causes um, of hyperkalemia are renal failure, potassium redistribution out out of cells, exogenous potassium, and uh, drugs. So there was a study done at the University of Pittsburgh in 1996 that looked at the most common causes, and they found that 77% of patients had renal failure involvement in hyperkalemia, 49% had medication involvement, uh, 49% also had hyperglycemia involved, and we'll explain how that works later, and 15% had potassium supplementation involved. Now obviously that adds up to more than 100%, which is an important point because just because you found one cause of hyperkalemia doesn't mean you have to stop there. 
you can keep digging for a few others as well. Mm. So those, those big causes, this was in 1996, <coughs> but those big causes again were renal failure, medications, hyperglycemia, and potassium supplements. Mm. So renal disease, because potassium is excreted through the kidneys, obviously if they're not working very well, <coughs> if the EF, EGFR is low, then you'll get a buildup of potassium. So all, all causes of renal failure can cause hyperkalemia. But I also wanted to mention renal tubular acidosis type 4. I'm not going to explain it here. It's worth reading into if you have the time. But type 4 causes hyperkalemia, and type 1 and type 2 cause hypokalemia. Moving on to the next cause, potassium redistribution from in-cells to out-of-cells. So there's a few different way that, ways that that works. One is hyperosmolar states. Beck, so how does a hyperosmolar state cause hyperkalemia? So my understanding is that when there's a hyperosmolar serum, um, the body needs to fix that imbalance and will respond by drawing water out of the cells into the serum. As a result of that, the potassium inside the cells is now at a higher concentration mm. because it's diluted by less water. And there's a, a concentration gradient of potassium. And so it sort of shoots down that gradient and the potassium leaves the cells to mm. um, go into the extracellular space. And that's what causes the hyperkalemia. You speak the truth. And uh, Rahul, the next cause, <laughs> acidosis. How does that cause? So in an acidotic state, you have too many hydrogen ions or H plus ions in the serum. Um, and so they get pulled intracellularly to balance that out. Mm. But as they get pulled intracellularly to maintain electroneutrality in the serum uh, or in that great across that barrier, you pull some potassium ions out, which are also positively charged ions. And so you end up with hyperkalemia, too many potassium ions in the serum. Spot on. Okay, now that you guys have done the hard ones, tissue breakdown also causes hyperkalemia because there's a lot of potassium inside the cells. You destroy those, that potassium will go into the serum. And uh, again, drugs, drug charts are important. Um, they can cause potassium redistribution. Saxomethonium, for example, which is used as an anesthetic agent, depolarizes the cell membrane and permits potassium to leave. Um, digitalis, which is a uh, digoxin, um, can do the same thing because it paralyzes those sodium potassium channels they're not working and so it can't effectively pump potassium into the cells so the extracellular potassium increases got nowhere to go mm. okay so so this was potassium redistribution from inside the cells to outside of the cells being one of those categories of causes for hyperkalemia and we said hyperosmolar state tissue breakdown and toxins and drugs mm. I just like oh to and know. acidosis yeah I'd just like to mention that hyperosmolar states includes things like hyperglycemia, particularly that, and that's a very common one as we heard in that Pittsburgh study. Mm. And that also links in with insulin because insulin is responsible for bringing potassium into the cells, mm. and if there's not enough insulin, mm. that doesn't happen. But also if there's not enough insulin, you get hyperglycemia and the resultant hyperosmotic state that that's we talked it. about. That's it, yeah. So what are some common sources of exogenous potassium, the next cause of hyperkalemia? So potassium supplementation is probably the most mm. common one. A lot of times this year I've found that someone has hyperkalemia, gone through the drug chart and found slow K and chlorvescence. Cross that off and it fixes it. 
um, TPN, so that's when you feed someone through the blood. Total parenteral nutrition. That's it. Um, has a lot of potassium in it as well, 60 millimoles. Uh, red blood cell transfusion. You often have to worry about this in those very sick patients that are anemic and have renal failure. You have to really balance those two things together. Uh, and finally, diet. Some people just really like bananas. <laughs> so we've talked about the different categories of things that can cause hyperkalemia. And it's important to note that these don't all exist in isolation. I had a patient a few years ago uh, when I was a medical student in third year um, who had renal failure. He had polypharmacy, including ACE inhibitors and spironolactone. Um, and, and so his, his kidneys were also failing and hyperkalemia was already an issue. And we found one day he had um, a whole lot of bananas next to his bed, so told him not to have bananas. bananas. And then the, ne- the next day, he'd replaced the bananas with apricots, so we told him not to um, not to have them. And then the next day, it was tinned salmon, and we just kept on going through this food thing. And in the end, he started um, secretly hiding his stashes of high potassium food and <laughs> eating them behind a pot plant in the foyer where we would find him when we were looking for him on ward rounds. Mm. Potassium addiction is spreading through this country. <laughs> <laughs> Plague. We need to weed out the potassium dealers. That's mm. where it starts. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so moving on to presentation of hyperkalemia. So what are the symptoms? Oftentimes, I think there's none. That's a very good point. Mm. Treat the blood test, not the patient. Mm. Is the common saying. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> the reverse of that. <laughs> but if they do have symptoms, they can have weakness, palpitations, and constipation. Okay. So, Beck, what about the signs? What signs do these patients have? Uh, my top response there would be none. Good. And uh, if they do have something, sometimes you'll find that they have weakness on a neurological exam or decreased bowel sounds when you put that stethoscope on their abdomen. Okay. It's probably a very poorly specific and sensitive sign. Mm. On to the next topic now, ECG changes. So that's very important. When you get someone with hyperkalemia, one of the first things you have to ask for is an ECG. And what in particular are you looking for? Tall, tendered T-waves. So that's the classic one, yeah. And that's generally the first thing that changes. And they also get a shortened QT interval. Uh, And when the potassium gets over 7, you get some other changes. So flattening and loss of the P-wave, a longer PR interval, which then progresses to heart block. I actually had a patient like this in a met call uh, just last week that had renal failure, had a K of 7, and we couldn't figure out why. She had this funny ECG before someone said, yep those two are linked high potassium is putting her in heart block and kind of end stage signs that hopefully we'll never see because we check out potassium on a daily basis and the people who need it are what asystole asystole that's definitely <laughs> the last sign slightly before that is a vf ven- vf ventricular Co- fibrillation torsad torsad de point yeah <laughs> And uh, kind of like a sinusoidal pattern as well, but hopefully we never see any of that. And um, just with that, I I know that we we said that once potassium gets above seven, some of those signs come out. But mm. there's I I can't cite any studies, but some studies have shown that there's actually a poor correlation between the potassium and the um and the ECG changes. Mm. So quite severe hyperkalemia can be associated with a normal ECG. Mm, absolutely. Uh, there, and there was another study oh. done in 1998 uh, that looked at potassium over six and only 46% had ECG changes. 
um, but 36% of those were peak T waves. So that is quite a relatively sensitive sign. Like if you do have an ECG change, that's probably the one that you'll see. And so finally, so how do you treat it? What's, what's your approach to someone who has a high potassium? So I guess a lot of the side effects we were talking about before, or the, the consequences are cardiac, so protecting the myocardium. In everyone? Potassium uh, of 5.1, give them the... No, they probably don't need it as much. The risks of their, their heart are not that great. So people with ECG changes, they're the ones that will get calcium gluconate. Or if they've got a life-threatening arrhythmia. Mm-mm. So calcium gluconate protects, protects the heart, it stabilizes the membranes. Um, and you give, give it IV, 10% in 10 mils. And the other important thing is you don't just give it walk away, like fixed. Um, you then need to lower their potassium, but you also need to remember to give them the calcium gluconate again within the next hour because it only lasts for 30 to 60 minutes. Mm. So what's, what's step two? We've protected the heart. That's good. That's pr- priority number one. Um, so to increase the excretion or shift of potassium so that it's no longer sitting in the serum. That's it. So we want to move it into the cells. We want to hide it for a little bit. And how do we do that? Uh, well, I think it, it depends on the reason that it's out. So insulin um, you'd give to everybody. So 10 units of short-acting insulin and um, 50% dextrose in 50 mils IV. That's it, yeah. But if there's an acidosis, you'd probably want to give some um, IV sodium bicarbonate as well. Okay, mm. I've never seen that done, but that's what ETG suggests. And, um, so that's a therapeutic guideline suggests that sodium bicarbonate, particularly in an acidosis situation, will lower potassium. Um, so then step three is actually getting the extra potassium out of the body. So how do we do that? So there's a substance called rhizonium, which can increase your excretion of uh, potassium, I believe, through the bowel. You can also use um, non-potassium sparing diuretics like Mm. fruzamide Mm. to directly excrete it through the kidneys, increase excretion through the kidneys. Mm. Um, Those are the two main ways you do it. And dialysis is kind of like your final final step if someone's in terrible renal failure and hyperkalemic. That's what you're gonna have to do ultimately. I'd just like to point out that rhizonium is really gross. Like It does taste a little bit like polystyrene, which is the name, sodium polystyrene sulfate. And maybe just keep that in mind when you're prescribing it. The nurses mix it with orange juice, which makes it okay, but it's still kind of like drinking sand. You sound so experienced. <laughs> He's drunk a lot of doctor sand. doctor right there. Drank a lot of sand. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just to summarize, um, when you're treating hyperkalemia, First of all, if there's life-threatening arrhythmia or ECG changes, you give IV calcium gluconate. 10% in 10 mils. Then the next thing to do is get the potassium into cells. So mm. insulin. Uh, 10 units of acrabit with 50% 50 mil dextrose. And uh, then you need to get the potassium out of the body with um, sodium polystyrene sulfonate, which... Also known as rhizonium. Yep. Um, and, and there are some other things that aren't necessarily mentioned in the Australian therapeutic guidelines of giving frusamide and salbutamol. And also, if the hyperkalemia is extreme, then dialysis is another option to consider. All right, that's it. So thanks very much, guys. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thanks for teaching.